God, we thank you so much for what we've lifted up to you through music, God. And Father, as we take a few moments now and we look into your word, God, open our hearts, open our minds, and Lord, may we respond in a way that you would have us to so we can leave here this morning a little different and then a little better than when we came in here. And it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Let's give Justin and the band a hand and the praise team. Justin, we appreciate you leading for us this morning. Do you ever get frustrated trying to figure out what people are looking for? If you're in the dating scene, it's, uh, it's frustrating at times. I can remember those days when you're trying to figure out what that guy or uh, that girl is looking for. In my case, it was what that girl's looking for. Uh, but you're, you're trying to figure that out, the expectations of uh, going to college. What's that college recruiter looking for? You're looking for a new job. What is that person looking for, that new opportunity? Trying to figure out their expectations of you and to, to make sure you're on the same page is, is very important. And sometimes it's frustrating by the vagueness and the confusion that you receive from other people. Well, this morning, from 1 Timothy chapter 3, in fact, this morning and next Sunday, we are going to look at what God's looking for in you and me. This passage, it starts in verse 1 and really runs through verse 13, is talking uh, originally to the church as they were trying to select overseers who we would think of as pastors, that's a a synonymous word, and select deacons. And they laid out these characteristics, not a checklist, but internal qualities that should be visible in these people, and that these are the kind of men that should be chosen to be the pastors and deacons of the church. But what I submit to you this morning is that if you look to the rest of the New Testament, you see these same characteristics and qualities laid out for what God's looking for in Mr. and Mrs. Joe Christian, the average person. In other words, God wants this from you and me. These are things God looks for in you and me. Five qualities today. And I want to tell you when, you, when you get right on these things, when these things are right, am I making a funny noise? Okay. Has it stopped? It's when I dance that it happens. So I guess I need to, I'll stay in one spot. Um, but if you get right on these qualities if this is who you really will be, you're going to be the kind of husband, the kind of wife, the kind of person that God wants you to be. So let's look at five this morning that we see in this passage. Here's number one. What's God looking for? As God looks down this morning and he looks at you and he looks at me, as God's in this room this morning and he looks at you and he looks at me, he looks, number one, for a servant's heart. A servant's heart. In verse 8, it says, deacons likewise are to be men worthy of respect. Now, the word deacon, this is very interesting. The word deacon literally means one who serves. Herschel Hobbes, who was a great New Testament scholar and a preacher in another generation, said the word deacon in the New Testament literally means a menial slave or a menial servant. In other words, it was a servant or a slave who did the lowest and the dirtiest of tasks. It wasn't even a top-ranked slave. It was someone who was willing to get down and dirty and do the things that 
no one else wanted to do or no one else would do. Now, what's interesting about this is this is the word used for deacon. A deacon was chosen not to be a manager of the church, but to serve the church. Now, here's what's interesting. Jesus Christ in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John spells out one of his purposes of coming to earth was to be a servant. Remember the story where Jesus washes his disciples' feet, and he tells them, you, you're to do just like I'm doing uh, to other people. That's the most menial and, and really a low-level task to wash someone's dirty feet. And as you read through the rest of the, the New Testament, what you find out is that every Christian is called to be a servant. What does a servant heart look like? It's a person who, from the inside out, truly wants to help other people. Yes, some people have a special gifting of service, of doing the menial task, that they want to do that above and beyond, where other people may be gifted in music or gifted in teaching or preaching or whatever. But every person is called to be a servant. I read this week, someone said that if you want to be a leader, you're going to spend a lot of your life frustrated because most people don't want to be led. If you want to be a servant, you're going to spend the rest of your life very fulfilled because everyone wants to be served. That is absolutely the truth. I want to ask you this morning, would the people who know you and me best describe us as a selfless, humble person who's willing to get down and dirty to help other people? And, and service, listen, it, does, it, it knows no prejudice. Some people will serve and assist the boss or some wealthy person because why? It'll benefit them. Some people treat service like a checklist. Well, I went and did this, I did that. Look how spiritual I am. That's not service. Some people, strangely enough, will help the down and out, but they wouldn't help someone they considered an equal or above them. Service knows no prejudice. Real service. And when God was looking in Ephesus 2,000 years ago for people to rise to the top to help serve and lead in that church, one of the main qualities he first looked for was a servant's heart. And I want to tell you this morning, when God looks at you and me this morning, one thing he's looking for, you don't have to be gray on this, he's looking for a servant's heart. Is that you and me today? Would the people who know us best describe us as servants? Dr. Albert Schweitzer was an extremely accomplished man. He was a medical doctor. He had a Ph.D. in theology. He was a very accomplished musician and organist, wrote a lot of music. He was a missionary. Toward the end of his life, this very well-lettered, educated, cultured man said, if you desire to be happy in life, Happiness is found in service, and the happiest person among you will be the one who will serve. God's looking for a servant's heart. <laughs> I think most of us are looking to be served. God's looking for people who are willing to be served. Here's the second thing that he says that he's looking for this morning in you and me. He's looking for people who are worthy of respect. Worthy of respect. What a, what a great, just reading that is good. In verse 2, talking about the overseer, the overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, self-control. We're going to look at some of that next week. Respectable. Do you see that? Respectable. Then you jump down to verse 8. Deacons, likewise, are to be men worthy of respect. Let me give you what 
this phrase, worthy of respect, means, and it's great. It does mean the idea of a splendor about someone, but fundamentally, here's what it was saying. A person worthy of respect is not the most charismatic in the room, not the best looking in the room, not the wealthiest in the room, not the most articulate in the room, but the worthy of respect person is the one who shows the qualities of determination, commitment, and stability. It's not one with a perfect life today or a pristine past yesterday, but the person who is stable and committed and determined. Mom and dad, you know what your kids need to see from you. They need to see a mom and dad worthy of respect. And no matter what we say... It comes down to who we are and what we do. Isn't it neat to know a person who's worthy of respect is a person who is stable and committed and dependable. It's somebody who does the things that they're supposed to do. It's somebody who is who, is who they should be. Worthy of respect, an honorable, dignified person. You know, the person who is worthy of respect is the person that draws people to Jesus Christ. The person who is worthy of respect is the person who says, gosh, you go to that church, that's where I want to go. You ever wonder if someone looks at us and go, ooh, they go to that church, I'm not going to that church. When God looks this morning, he's looking for people who are worthy of respect. In verse 11, it's interesting. In the same way their wives are to be women worthy of respect. Here's a third word he uses this morning, and that's the word sincere. Look in verse 8. Deacons, likewise, are to be men worthy of respect and sincere. The King James Version of the Bible uses the phrase, not double-tongued. Do you know anybody who's double-tongued? I don't mean like they're a freak of nature. I mean, someone maybe uh, psychologically, spiritually double-tongued. You know what he's saying here? When I look down at you, when I look at you, I do not want to see a hypocrite. Remember, in the Greek world, a hypocrite was an actor, and it was not a bad thing originally. All the actors were men. So if Clayton and I were going to put on a two-man play, or a two-person play, in the first act we might be men, then we would change masks, and we would be very ugly women. And then, you know, maybe in the third scene, he would be a woman and I'd be a man. And, you know, there's no mask that would make that good, correct? I mean, that would be bad. But the whole thing was a hypocrite was a person who wore a mask. And in the theater, it was fine. But when you get in real life, it's not fine. And what God is saying to you and me, when I look down, what I expect, what I want to see, I don't want to see a two-faced. I don't want to see somebody who is, hey, brother, how you doing? Can you believe that person just irritates me? Oh, I love you. They just make me sick. They are the best teacher in the world. You know, I wish they'd get moved to another school. Oh, I want you to coach my child. Well, I hope the school board fires them before next year. You ever known anybody like that? You know, one of the bad things about a Dale Carnegie training, how many of y'all know who Dale Carnegie was? And great, great stuff, great stuff. The problem is, 
If it's not sincere, it's terrible. Because you learn how to smile and you learn how to call people by names and you learn how to do all the right things, but if the heart's wrong, it's terrible. You see, when God looks from heaven, He's looking for sincere people. He wants you to be genuine. How can you be a good parent if you're not sincere? Your kids will smell through that at some point. Good grief. How can you be a good husband or a wife? They know. And believe it or not, if we're not sincere, we really don't have a lot of friends because they don't trust us. They may listen to our gossip. It's like driving by a wreck. You want to see what's going on. You don't want to be in the wreck. What makes a winner in God's eyes? People with a servant heart who don't mind getting their hands dirty. People who are worthy of respect. Not worthy of respect because they have a lot of money or they're famous. That's great, but worthy of respect because you can count on them. They're dependable. They're stable. They're going to be here tomorrow. going to be here the next day. And people who are sincere, they, they are who they are trustworthy and genuine and the real deal. Now let's have some fun with number four, what God says here. God says when he looks from heaven, he wants to see people who handle alcohol properly. Now I did not say handle your booze well. Laugh, that was meant to be funny. But handle alcohol properly. Now guys, what what is so interesting is the Bible is so relevant. And 2,000 years ago, what was going on in Ephesus that God was addressing through Paul to Timothy was so problematic, such a part of their culture, he needed to address the alcohol issue. You jump ahead 2,000 years ago, your head is in the sand if you don't think this is an issue that needs to be addressed from God's Word. Hot potato for sure. But I want you to follow along with me and let's see what the Bible says about about alcohol. In verse 3, it says, The overseer should not be given to drunkenness. In verse 8, deacons are likewise to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine. How many of you are familiar with the Bible translation, the message? If you, if you don't have one, go buy one of those. It's a great translation. It's very expressive, and it's, it's very accurate. Here's how the message translates verse 8. The deacon should be someone not too free with the bottle. Don't you love that? Well, we're looking for some deacons who aren't too free with the bottle. Isn't that, that, that's, that's just great. In, in verse 2, it says the overseer should be temperate and self-controlled. Temperate and self-controlled are cousins. And, and then you jump down to verse 11 on the deacon's wife, worthy of respect and temperate. In other words, self-controlled. What is being said here about alcohol? All kinds of opinions that, that total abstinence is the only way. That moderation is correct. You may or may not have ever heard the three great truths of religion, but I'm going to share them with you. Truth number one is Protestants don't acknowledge the Pope as our leader, correct? 
Catholics do. If you're a Catholic, the Pope is your, your ultimate leader. Is, is a Protestant. Protestant is a non-Catholic, Baptist, Methodist, Lutheran. We don't acknowledge the Pope as our leader, correct? Muslims do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord, correct? You don't believe me? Fly to Iran and scream that a few times. We'll pray for you to be released from jail. And the third thing is, is two Baptists don't acknowledge each other in the liquor store. <laughs> this guy stopped me one Sunday at another church. He said, Preacher, what did two Baptists say to each other in the liquor store? And I said, I have no idea. He said, Nothing. <laughs> what is the Bible saying? Let me just stop and ask you this. What's the most important thing on, on any issue? Is it the preacher's opinion or the Bible? So you're, you don't have any problem saying the Bible because it, it ain't no way it's you, preacher. Okay, let me ask you this. What's the most important, your, your opinion or the Bible? Well, that's different. No, it is not different. It is not different. Let's look at this subject. Some people say that you should never drink. I have read, I've read in recent days, and I've read years ago, articles from reported scholars who said that the alcohol or the wine in the New Testament was really not alcoholic. In other words, that you could not get drunk from drinking the wine in the Bible. That would solve all the problems, wouldn't it? I mean, that would solve all the problems about alcohol. You couldn't get drunk. The problem is, is the Bible itself contradicts that tremendously. In Romans 13, 13, look what it says. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery and dissension and jealousy. Why does it say there we should not get drunk? Why was he telling them 2,000 years ago they couldn't or they weren't supposed to if they couldn't? You following me? My main goal is to make both extremes mad this morning, so I'll be successful if I've done that. In in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, it's a great verse. It says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now, folks, before I was a Christian, I drank a lot. So I, I understand this, and I'm not bragging about that. I'm just telling you the truth. I understand this from the side of Otis Campbell on Andy Griffin. And I understand it as a person who's tried to study the Bible on the issue. When you are drunk, none of you have ever been, but you've seen it before, right? A person is filled with alcohol, correct? He's saying here, don't get drunk. Now, why would he say that if it wasn't a possibility? You following me? No, you really can't, but don't. It's like telling me, now, you, you don't need to jump off your house and fly to Monroe this afternoon. I'm not. Either way, I'm not. For someone to say you couldn't get drunk in New Testament times is revisionist history. They're just taking what the Bible says, and they don't like what it says, so they're changing it. Okay? You may not like to hear that, but, but truth is truth, correct? Two plus two equals five, whether you believe it or not, right? You listening? What does it equal? Thank you, okay? 
If I say it's five, it's still four. So you could get drunk. What is, but what, what is the Bible teaching on, on this issue? Well, in verse 8, he says, don't be given to much wine. And, and again, if it was just grape juice, why would he say that unless he was worried about your taking too much calories? And that wasn't the, the purpose here. Much means plenteous or, or an abundance amount. What he's saying here, he was telling the overseers and the deacons and telling all Christians, because this is throughout the Bible, that alcohol has to be handled properly if you're, if you're serious about Jesus Christ, okay? Now, properly may mean different things for different people, okay? First of all, some people should never, ever drink, period, okay? Let me give you a couple of groups. Everybody right here, look at me. Wake up. Quit texting. They're not texting mom and dad. I'm teasing. How many right here, besides Josh and Janelle, are 21? God will never tell you to drink. You know why? Because mommy and daddy will pull your teeth out one by one. But it's illegal. Romans 13 says to obey the law of the land, doesn't it? Well, I just like to smoke a little pot occasionally. I'm not hurting anybody. It's illegal, okay? As a Christian, you have to consider that, right? By the way, taking prescription drugs in huge quantities would be just exactly what he's talking about here too. We can Christianize getting high. So a person who's underage should never drink. It's illegal. It's wrong. Here's a second person. If you've got a propensity to addiction, you don't need to drink. I became a Christian. I loved beer. And my philosophy was one beer is good, but ten is a whole lot better. Now, that's drunkenness, correct? Of course it is. And what I had to do, at least for about 10, 15 years, I did not need to touch it. I didn't even need to smell it. Because my personality was, if one's good, ten's better. And I didn't need to be around it. If you have an addiction problem, moderation is not the solution. Abstinence is the solution for you. If you have a family member or friend who has uh, uh, an addiction problem, you're probably not doing them a favor by having beer all over the house when they're around, okay? That's probably not going to help. And, and please don't leave here and say, well, the preacher was promoting drinking. I had 10 people after the early service say, I'm going to go get a beer. <laughs> they were kidding, I think. <laughs> Do you know the third leading cause of preventable death in America is, is our alcohol-related? Third leading cause of preventable deaths in America is alcohol-related. 75 to 100,000 people in America die from alcohol-related causes. 40% of car fatalities, alcohol-related. One-third of suicides involve alcohol. 50% of drownings involve alcohol. Maybe that's why 2,000 years ago God said... To those people in Ephesus who, by the way, could get drunk off their wine, he didn't say you shouldn't. He said you better be careful. I talked to someone this week that I have a lot of respect for. He's a wonderful Christian and very intelligent person who told me that alcohol in moderation for an adult can be healthy for certain 
parts of your body, your heart and things like that. But what else he said was, is the tipping point for it becoming unhealthy is pretty narrow. In other words, one glass of wine might be healthy. Two and three begins to have a negative effect. You follow me on that? So you have to weigh all those things out when you handle it properly. Also, you've got to consider your Christian witness. Okay? Certain parts of the world, and I'm, I'm not even trying to be funny, we could go today after church, and as your pastor, we could go have pizza and beer. Ruston is not part of that world. If we were in England or Germany, that would be normal. Cindy and I go to McDonald's after church, and I get a Big Mac and a supersized fries and a glass of Chardonnay, and you walk in. <laughs> That'd be really freaky at McDonald's, wouldn't it? Whatever Chardonnay is, if I got a Bud Light and I'm sitting. You know, that would hurt my Christian witness. And so that's something I don't need to do. Handle it wisely. My opinion and your opinion are just that. They're our opinions. God says handle it properly. Okay? That's what he's looking for. And again, if you think this is not a big issue in our world, your head is buried somewhere because it's a huge issue. Okay? Handle it properly. Here's the fifth thing he says. And this affects churches and Christians far more than the alcohol issue. Don't pursue dishonest gain. In other words, in other words, what, what he's saying, and it's almost humorous, he's saying don't be addicted to wine, but don't be addicted to money either. In verse 8, deacons are not to pursue dishonest gain. All the way back to verse 3, they're not a lover of money. Don't be a swindler. Don't cheat people. Don't underpay your employees just because you can and you can get away with it. Don't look for ways in your business dealings to get on top of somebody financially. Don't love the Benjamin Franklin more than you love Jesus. And again, I think that's more of an issue among Christians than the alcohol thing is. In other words, when God looks at you and me, He looks very carefully about how we love and how we pursue financial gain. I read a story of a lady in Costa Mesa, California. It was a Monday morning, and her and her three-year-old son were home alone. And she was cleaning the house, and she noticed that the little boy was following close behind her. Now, kids have a tendency to do that. And so after about 30 minutes, she said, Son, why don't you go to your room and play? And he said, Mama, I don't want to. I want to I follow you. Well, again, you know, that's cute for a little while, isn't it, Mom and Dad? But after about an hour of every step, you know, she turns around and the little boy's on her heels. She says, Son, why are you following me so closely? And here's what he said. He said, Mama, yesterday in Sunday school, The teacher told us to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And I can't see Jesus, so I'm trying to follow yours. You see, people are looking at your life. What are they seeing? And God Almighty from heaven, God Almighty in this room this morning, is looking at your life and my life 
Wonder what he's seeing. Maybe a better question is, is he seeing what he wants to see? Let's pray. This morning, if you're a Christ follower, my challenge is to to you and to me, really look deep into your heart. What, What is God seeing? If you're not a Christian, I challenge you right where you're seated to pray with me. And and just say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. And I want to turn from my sins. I believe you're the Son of God who died for me. And Jesus, this morning I ask you to come into my heart. I ask you to be my Lord and Savior. Let me have your attention. In just a minute, I'm going to invite you to stand and to respond to what God said to you this morning. Christian, my first challenge is to us. As you look in your heart, as God looks in your heart, does He see the right things? And if not, where you're standing or at the altar, will you get it right with God? Certainly in this room, there needs to be repentance and some brokenness. Let it begin with us, Christian. Maybe today you'd like to join our church. We would love for you to do that. One way you can do that is by coming in just a moment, letting one of these ministers help you. Come and join our church if God's leading you to do that. Maybe you just prayed and asked Christ into your heart. Or or maybe you're ready to do that. We would love to help you do that. Come and talk to one of us down front. Let's stand. Just bow your heads as Justin plays.